Well, friends, if you would take your copy of the scriptures and turn with me to Psalm 11. As we continue to make our way through book one of the Psalter, the overall theme is conflict in book one of the Psalter. And we're going to see that same theme emerge as it has in most of the Psalms we've encountered thus far. And before we read the scripture, let's ask our God to help us understand his word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you have been pleased in your kindness to, res- to reveal yourself to us. And Lord, as you've made yourself known, we pray for the, the wisdom of your Spirit, the illuminating power that comes from Him to instruct us in the truth and to sanctify us by it. Would you take your word tonight, show us who you are and what it is you require of us as your people For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hear now, brethren, the reading of God's Word, Psalm 11. To the choir master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold His face. Well, this is God's Word, and may He bless His Word to us tonight. Well, as we begin, I want to transport you in your mind's eye back to 156 A.D., to Asia Minor, in a city called Smyrna, the very same Smyrna to whom Jesus spoke in the New Testament's last book, John's Revelation. There we meet an old man who is a pupil of the Apostle John. His name was Polycarp. It's a strange name. It means much fruit. Polycarp was the leading elder at the church in Smyrna, and at this point, 86 years old. He had spent his life standing for Christ, resisting heresies that claimed that Jesus never really took flesh. And he constantly exhorted God's people to stand fast, to live godly lives, to be submissive to their elders. Well, under the Roman emperor Antonius Pius and the proconsul of Asia Minor, Quadratus, somewhere between 154 and 156 AD, a fierce persecution erupted against Christians. Believers were rounded up, they were whipped violently, laid on burning shells or on pointed spits, and then finally thrown to the wild beasts. We have no idea how many died in this purge, but the violence against believers was such that the evil men wanted to chop off the head of the snake, as it were, that is to kill the most prominent among the Christians in the city which was Polycarp. 
Now, the aged pastor initially determined to remain steadfast in his work, and he refused to leave the city. However, the pressure of his friends mounted to get out of town, and Polycarp moved to two different farms outside of the city for a very brief season. However, a believer who knew of his whereabouts was captured and tortured to reveal Polycarp's location. Polycarp knew he wasn't safe, but he put his foot down with his friends. He would not run from this trouble. Rather, he said, the will of God be done. And it was the will of God for these men to find him and to seize him. When they arrived at the house to capture Polycarp, Polycarp gave orders for a feast to be spread before these men. It said that the soldiers were struck by his dignity and kindness, even his age. Why pursue a man so old with such vigor? While the men ate, Polycarp prayed. And his prayer was such that it said that it moved some of those very soldiers to repentance in Jesus Christ and faith in the Savior. Well, these men did their duty. They brought Polycarp to the head of the police, and then the pressure began to sacrifice to Caesar. After a number of attempts to persuade him to save himself, Polycarp uttered those now famous words, Eighty-six years I have been serving Christ, and He has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my King who saved me? The man who wouldn't flee was then taken to the flames. Now, Polycarp's death is an incredibly moving story, and I'm just giving you a taste of it here. But the situation with him is quite similar in nature to what we see with David in Psalm 11. Like it was with Polycarp, David's friends are coming to him and calling upon him to flee, to get out of town. Trouble was coming, and that trouble could rise to the very point of David's death. So in the minds of David's counselors, it was time to run. But like Polycarp, that is not how David saw it. Now we have to understand, brethren, that fleeing in times of trouble may be necessary. Athanasius, the great defender of Jesus' equality with the Father against the Arians, he was in exile multiple times. Indeed, the Apostle Paul listened to his friends and left cities like Thessalonica and Ephesus. But when to stay and when to run, or more importantly, where to put your trust when trouble comes, is a crucial point made in the psalm. And here David shows us the comfort he has in crisis. And I want you to see three things with me here. We begin with the believer's safety. The believer's safety in verses 1 to 3. The psalm starts with an emphatic declaration. In the Lord, all caps, in in Yahweh, the covenant-keeping, sovereign, eternal, unchangeable, with you, God, in Him, David says, I take refuge, or better, I have taken refuge. David is uttering a confession of faith. Yahweh is my refuge. But more than that, David is speaking of a position, an identity, even before The crisis is described. David is saying, My safety is a matter I settled a long time ago. Yahweh has been and therefore will be my refuge. Now, we don't know when in David's life he wrote this psalm, 
but it reflects the confidence of a life lived with trust in the Lord. David has seen Yahweh as his protector when he rescued his sheep from lions and bears, when he fought Goliath, the wars of the Philistines, or on the run from Saul. David had put his trust, he had laid his safety in the hands of his faithful Lord. So when a fresh crisis comes here, whatever it is, David is saying, I don't need a new refuge, a cave in the wilderness, a different home among foreign peoples like the Philistines or the Moabites, though David had fled there previously. He's saying, my confidence and my future rest in Yahweh, who Himself is my hiding place, my shelter from the storm. Yahweh is my peace in the midst of trouble, and I've learned to run to Him, and I will run to Him. Well, brethren, there's a striking lesson already for us to learn, and it's simply this. The Lord our God has proven Himself to be the refuge for His people. If you haven't memorized Psalm 46, verse 1, you should. God is a refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. That's what David is saying. Whom has the Lord our God forsaken? What believer has God abandoned when that believer sought Him? You can read the annals of redemptive history from Noah to Abraham to Joseph to Moses down to the days of David. And you will find that the Lord has sustained and helped all who have sought Him. That was the substance of Polycarp's declaration when threatened with death. I've served Christ for 86 years and I've always found Him to be faithful. Therefore, I will cling to Him in this moment. Well, that's exactly the sentiment of David. And it begs the question of you and me tonight. Is Yahweh our refuge? Have we settled the matter that when the dams of difficulty break, when the, rains and fl- when the rain pours and the floods beat against us, that our house is built on the rock? We cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we go to the Lord. We keep coming to our covenant-keeping Savior who has loved us and given Himself up for us. And therefore, we remain steadfastly committed to Him. We will submit to His hard providence, whatever it may be. We will trust Him in the face of difficulty. We will cling to Him in the fire. We won't think we can save ourselves or work out our own deliverance with our crafty thinking or our escape plans. We will give our present situation to our God, pour our hearts out in our trouble, and wait upon the Lord, who is our helper, our defender, our shelter in the storms of life. Now, because of David's posture of soul, he confronts his friends. How do we really know they're his friends? Well, they're giving him counsel in view of the attacks of the wicked. Verse 2, For behold, the wicked bend the bow. In other words, the folks speaking to David distinguish themselves from the wicked. They're not attacking David. They're concerned for David. These are well-meaning counselors who see the seriousness of the assault against the king, and they're fearful for David's life. Things are so bad. They speak of, verse 3, the foundations being destroyed. It's as though the fabric of society is falling apart. Order is disappearing, David. And when that happens, what can the righteous do? 
In other words, David, there's nothing you can do here. You just need to run. You need to hightail it out of town to some remote place. You have no options. Now, of course, that sounds like sane advice in a fearful situation. But David sees it as a temptation. Verse 1, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain? No, it's not that David suddenly believes that he's immune to trouble, that he's somehow above it all. He doesn't have a Muhammad Ali mindset. You remember the story about Ali? He once said to a stewardess who told him to sit down and buckle up, Superman don't need no seatbelt, to which she replied, Superman don't need no airplane. And he sat down. Well, Ali acted invincible. That's not David's mentality here. Nevertheless, he believes his friends are encouraging him down a path of unbelief, of self-preservation to the exclusion of faith in Yahweh as his keeper. It's actually a very similar temptation to the words of Peter uttered to Jesus. After Peter's great confession, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus began to speak plainly of His coming suffering. And that was anathema to Peter. He immediately reacted. And you remember, He rebuked Peter. I mean, He rebuked Jesus. Peter's thoughts were, no, 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 the Christ can't suffer. The cross could never be in your future. You can't stand for that. That's something to flee. How did Jesus respond? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance or you are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's exactly the problem here. David's friends mean well, but they have their mind set on the things of man. They're counseling contrary to faith in the Lord. That David has to save himself at all costs. And do you see the subtle idolatry that lies behind his friend's counsel? Safety for yourself, David, is the central matter of life. You can't risk your death. You can't be in a position where you might be under great threat. David's friends are saying the king's security is to be prized more than the Lord Himself, as though the Lord can't give David refuge. Now, brethren, this is a complicated matter, and I don't mean to make it sound simple. If you run, you're an idolater. If you stand firm in trouble, you're faithful. No, it's very nuanced. Jesus, when He's sending out His disciples, tells them as they go out preaching, they will be rejected. And He says, Matthew 10, 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. But in the very same conversation, He tells them how they must not fear those who can kill only the body. They must fear the one who can kill body and soul, throw it into hell. And they must acknowledge Christ before hostile men. In other words, you stand firm and proclaim My name. Do you see the tension? Sometimes it's time to flee. And sometimes it's time to stay put. How do we know when it's time for which action? Well, that takes biblical wisdom. It takes Philippians 1.9 in abounding love and knowledge and insight in order to prove what is best. But when we seek what is best, here's the really tough part. 
our friends may be well-meaning, but give us bad counsel. Our friends may exhort us to do things from a posture of unbelief. Our friends may prize the care of self. They may prize safety above service to the Lord. I think of old Mr. Dixon, who was an elder in the Reformed Presbyterian Church in Scotland in the 19th century. He heard a young man with a solid ministry talking about wanting to go off to the cannibalistic islands of the South Pacific. And he said to the young man, You'll be eaten by cannibals! Don't throw your life away, son! Well, young John Payton had the sense enough to know this was advice from unbelief. Advice that didn't take rest in Yahweh's refuge. And he told Mr. Dixon, as he felt the wail of the heathen in his soul and Christ's call to go, and I quote, Mr. Dixon, you are now advanced in years, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day of resurrection, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. (laughs) What boldness. Here's the point. Our friends can tempt us away from the source of safety, the Lord Himself. Our friends can tell us the thing that we need above everything else is just to get out of trouble. Well, brethren, that might be what you don't need. So will we prize Christ first or our comfort first? Will we seek wisdom from above, coming to God who is our refuge? Or will we just do what is easy, what seems safe? Our safety must be in the Lord and we rest in Him in times of risk. Secondly, see with me. The believer's perspective. Verses 4 to 7. David's advisors look around and all they see is adversaries. They see mounting trouble, potential death, the collapse of all order. But David sees something else. Verse 4. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. When evil men rage and appear to gain the victory. Yahweh hasn't been unseated from His throne. Our God hasn't lost His grip on the world order. His purposes haven't been thwarted. Yahweh reigns. The Lord rules from His heavenly post. Yahweh isn't thrown into a tizzy when the wicked string their bow and start shooting. Further, Yahweh isn't taking a nap. He isn't on a journey. He isn't preoccupied with some other stressful activity so he can't pay attention to what's happening with his people. Yahweh is never in distress. He's never removed from the seat of power or control. And he's never blind to the burdens of his people or the boastful acts of the wicked. David declares, end of verse 4, Yahweh's eyes see. That is, our God who is lavish with his covenant love and reigning, He beholds everything that occurs. He is omniscient. But then David says more than God notices everything. He says His eyelids 
test the children of man. Now, brethren, to test men implies three crucial things about Yahweh's character. One, that He rules men and therefore can initiate a test. Two, that He has a standard of righteousness by which all men are measured. And three, as He measures the actions of men, scrutinizing their way, He holds men accountable. Our God isn't merely a holy God who can measure men's holiness or lack thereof. He tests men. That is, He exercises judgment over all men. And then David declares, The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Our God on the throne is not just an impersonal force of justice. He is not inert or static, while two kinds of people, the righteous and the wicked, carry out their deeds. It may seem to us at times as if the Lord is still, or unaware, or just unmoved by injustice, but that is never the case. David, knowing God's character, that Yahweh is judge, and the judge of all the earth shall do what is right, he knows that Yahweh initiates tests to have men prove who they are. Now you understand, when God tests men, it's not that God has to figure out what men will be. God knows all things. God knows all contingencies with respect to our actions. He's set apart the godly for Himself, and He's passed over the wicked to face His judgment. But as the Lord brings tests into our lives, those tests do different things for the righteous and the wicked. For instance, when the Lord tested Abraham, Genesis 22, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there, the Lord knew that Abraham's faith would emerge from the test refined. The Lord doesn't test the righteous to bring us into ruin. He tests us to prove the genuineness of our faith and to deepen our faith in Him. But with the wicked, the testing of God shows what they truly are. That they are self-centered, violent men. Think of Cain or Esau or Korah and his hatred of Moses or Saul the king. All of these men had violence in their hearts. Some, under distress, murdered righteous men. Others couldn't achieve the murder, but they sought to do it. Now, we have a saying in Christian circles. Maybe it expands beyond Christian circles. You occasionally hear this. Trials don't make you what you are. Trials reveal what's in you. Trials unveil what is already there. Well, as the Lord tests the righteous, just as He's done with David, David yet clings to God. He will not run. He will cling. He will see that Yahweh is his refuge. Sometimes David fails. Sometimes he has a faulty perspective. Sometimes he gets angry. Sometimes he tells or speaks things that are not true. But ultimately, he keeps coming back to the Lord. That is not how it goes with the wicked. Saul, for instance... No matter how many times he was confronted about his pride, his self-centeredness, his murderous rage, his bad decisions, he kept turning away from the Lord. Trouble revealed that King Saul had no faith. He was, in the words of Jesus, 
a rocky ground hearer. A shoot of apparent faith sprung up. But when difficulty came, when he was squeezed, he fell away. He had no root. And in his unstable state, what did Saul do? He lied, cheated, stole, falsely accused, and sought to murder to get what he wanted. That's what the wicked do. And what is the Lord's opinion of wicked men who act like this? Did you notice what the text says? His soul, that is Yahweh's soul, hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Now, brethren, this is the second time in the last few Psalms, the other being Psalm 7, where God's Word has specified an anger against or hatred of the wicked. We may have to adjust a common saying that is out there in Christendom. God hates the sin and loves the sinner. That's not what this text is saying. He hates the wicked. He doesn't merely hate their sin. His soul hates them because they are an affront to His holiness. His whole being recoils from their evil. Now, yes, other scriptures remind us that while God hates them on the one hand, He yet loves evil and ungrateful men in that He provides things for them. He sends rain. He makes the sun shine on the unjust. He gives temporal blessings, food, drink, clothing. He makes them experience good gifts, marriage, children, sometimes wealth and freedom from crushing sickness. But all those kindnesses should lead them to repentance. But with the wicked, God's kindnesses are ignored. There is no thanksgiving. There's just running on in self-centeredness, devoid of all gratitude. And if someone gets in the way, they want to squash them like a bug. Yahweh hates that. He is holy and just, and thereby He must withdraw from evil. He must bring judgment on evil. And do you notice here that David spells out that judgment? In verse 6, David speaks of the retribution God will bring on the wicked. Let him, that is let Yahweh... Rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Does that sound like a passage of scripture you've heard of where fire and sulfur came raining down from heaven? David's language is alluding to the sudden destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. There, the judge of all the earth did what was right. He swept away the wicked in fire. And David understands Yahweh hasn't changed. The portion of the wicked, their destiny, is the burning flames coming from Yahweh's wrath. Because He will not abide evil men acting as though they're not accountable. Now, the Lord our God, brethren, may not take them out on our timetable. And this is the tension in which we live. As we wait upon the Lord to bring His justice. But David is sure that the seated Watching and testing king will exercise judgment. And this is another reason for David to rest secure right now as trouble comes against him. Yahweh will by no means clear the guilty. The day will come when violence will cease and when violent men will be swiftly silenced. And while we don't delight in the death of the wicked, their coming judgment is good news for us. David will never need to flee when violent men are forever destroyed. 
when a burning judgment crushes them, then David will be secure. He will have peace. Nothing will be present to make him afraid. And think of that day, beloved, a day when there are no more acts of terror, no more violence, no Islamic jihadists kidnapping children and turning them into bombers. No more snatching of girls and selling them into a traffic for sexual pleasure. No more sadistic secularists walking into schools and murdering children. No more selfish sinners determining to kill their children in the womb. What a day it will be when violence will come to an end, when none shall hurt or destroy on Yahweh's holy mountain. And then we will have relief, we will have rest, we will have joy in the presence of our beloved Redeemer. God's judgment is a chilling thing, raining down fire and sulfur, pleading for the rocks to fall upon them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. That's a terrifying scene. But if you're a believer in the Lord, it's a calming scene. Because all of our troubles will end. Why? Verse 7, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. What David is telling us here is that evil will never escape the eye of the Lord. And while we are still in a season where violence threatens us, where wicked men attack us, there's a spiritual reality that should settle us. God is on His throne. That's David's perspective. It's a spiritual vision. His friends are flipping out in fear. David is seeing with the eyes of faith. And I wonder, beloved, if we have that perspective. Do we see that the foundations are not shaken, even if there is political turmoil, even if there is disorder in the church, even if the mountains are falling into the heart of the sea, there is not turmoil or overwhelming calamity because Yahweh is our foundation. He is our rock. Do we see His unchanging character? And is His reign giving resolve to your faith? You know, it's interesting in the book of Revelation how in the opening three chapters... John records tribulation everywhere for the people of God. John is exiled on Patmos for the Word of God, the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says he's experiencing tribulation along with the brethren. And then the seven letters to the seven churches, what do they describe? False apostles, Jewish slanderers in the very synagogue of Satan, false teachers like Balaam who seduced with sexual immorality and idolatry, a Jezebel threatening the church, Great suffering, imprisonment, coming death, the danger of self-indulgence in the world. Oh wait, I thought we just wanted to get back to the early church. Do you hear of the mess? It's obvious that trouble is everywhere in these letters. But then comes Revelation 4. Our perspective moves from the scene of earth to the scene of heaven. And the key word of Revelation 4 is the throne. Twelve times in Revelation 4... God is on His throne. And John describes the beauty of the reigning sovereign and the praise He is due. You see, the world seems to be crumbling, but John, the servant of Jesus, is given a different perspective, a heavenly one. And our eyes need to be set, brethren, on the righteous reigning Lord who is over His people, who sees them. Are we living with this perspective? Are we doing all we can to stir up our faith to behold the God who is in control? Do we remember Him? Do we eye His love and His faithfulness and His promises? 
Are we focused on a true spiritual vision? May the Lord give us this perspective. And then finally, very briefly, just the last line of verse 7, see the believer's hope. David has just unfolded the dark end for the depraved, how they'll be, the wicked will be wiped out. But the destiny of the believer is different. Last line of verse 7. The upright shall behold his face. Who are the upright? Well, the upright are, as David has confessed, those who take refuge in the Lord. That is, those who trust Him. The upright are not in themselves a people without flaws. That would rule out every Old Testament believer, including David. But the Lord sets His righteousness on them. He gifts them a set-apart status, a purity before them. And the New Testament will go on to describe how the upright are upright. They've received the gift of righteousness, the very righteousness of Christ, by grace through faith alone. They are declared righteous on the basis of Jesus' perfection, and they're transformed by their trust in Christ. Grace saves them, and grace changes them from one degree of glory to another, so that their longing is to commune with God. You see, the hope of the believer is not merely safety in this world. I think this is one of the things that distinguishes us so drastically between our heroes in the faith in the early church, between the reformers, the martyrs, is that we're so concerned for our safety and ease. But the people of God are hoping in something better than that. Fellowship with the Lord. A commentator on the psalmist, Derek Kidner, puts it like this. If the first line of this psalm showed us where the believer's safety lies, the last line shows us where his heart should be. He desires to gaze upon the Lord. There's an earnest craving that fellowship, the fellowship of the garden, could be restored, that we will walk with God, that we will behold Him face to face. Yes, David will tell us in Psalm 27, God saying, Seek my face, and your face, O Lord, I will seek. And David sought God's face in the tabernacle. But David wants the day when he will behold God with His presence physically right there. When His faith will become sight. It's not enough for us to taste God's nearness through the Word. We want to be before the face of God. Isn't this our future? What does Jesus say in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 8? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? They shall see God. 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And then the capstone, Revelation 22.4, and they shall see His face. Do you hear how, how often Scripture speaks of this hope? We want more than safety. We want to be in the very presence of our Savior. And again, this is how the martyrs could die. That in this night, that on this night, we could have a, a merry supper with the Lord. I might die in the flames, which is momentary, but I go immediately to the presence of my Savior. 
That's why Paul could say, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? It is gain. Do we long for the day when we will see the King in His beauty? Do you yearn for the beginning of your eternal rest when you will be near to Christ? And what should we do as we wait for that day? David is saying, not run, but take refuge in the Lord. Strive to please Him. Put life in perspective that God is on His throne. Have a spiritual vision. Don't set your hope on the things of man, on simply what you can see. Look beyond it to the spiritual realm where God reigns and His people are safe with Him. Brethren, may may this psalm encourage us to set our eyes on the spiritual vision, on true reality, the Lord on His throne, and the hope of beholding Him in the face of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we come to praise You that You are the reigning sovereign, that You are the tester of men, that You reward those who diligently seek You and You bring retribution on those who despise Your ways. Lord, we come to put all of our trust in You tonight. We come to recognize our need of You. Guard us, O Lord, against bad counsel, even the very counsel of our friends who would direct us in a way of self-preservation that is contrary to trust in the Lord. Give us the wisdom to know when to stand firm, and when we need to back down. Help us to have the longing of Your people in our hearts to see the face of You, our God, to be with You forever. O Lord, hear us as we pray such things, and stir in our hearts the hope that is to come. For we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.